0: Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie." I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely." For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with you all. Amen. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for the end of the book. Lord, it's not often that we come to this place in life, this place in the church, this place in our own history where we are at the end of the book. And so, Lord, this morning, impress upon us with this passage of scripture, the importance, the urgency, the holiness of the moment. In Jesus' name, amen. I do hope that we are impressed with the importance and the urgency of coming to the end of the book of Revelation. I hope that you realize that there are not that many Christians in Christianity as a whole and certainly in American Christianity who ever have the privilege Of studying the book of Revelation because as we said at the very beginning back in March when we started this study, there are so few pastors and churches that actually teach the book of Revelation. I see lots of pastors who like to go through the letters to the seven churches and go through that and have a little series on what Jesus says to the churches, then they just end there and then they go back to whatever they're doing. But we have had a unique and blessed opportunity. In fact, if you would turn back with me, Two, chapter 1, remember there was a specific blessing that was promised to the reader of this book. And now I'm looking for it, right? Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So we have been going through this study for the last uh, seven or so months. And as we've been going through it, God has been adding to us the blessings of this passage of Scripture, of the book of Revelation. Remember the book of Revelation. Revelation means apocalypse. It means unveiling. It doesn't mean apocalypse like war, you know, the way people have made movies. It means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And there in the first chapter again, we were told that this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ by God to Jesus, that Jesus himself was being given a revelation that was previously uh, not fully revealed to him even as God in heaven. And yet as, we, as God gave this revelation to Christ and Christ gave it to John and John gave it to the church at large 2,000 years ago, here we are at the end of the book. And if you've ever watched or been into any of those epic movies like The Lord of the Rings, you come to that final scene and you know, as they're all going to go off into the sunset and all that kind of stuff, Remember, it's like the end of all things is at hand, and you get that sense of the finality that a time has come and a time has passed, and here we have that very real today as we come to the end of the book, and as we said last week, there's a break at at verse 5 and 6, and beginning in verse 6 here, we have what could be called the epilogue to the book of Revelation, all of the things that the book of Revelation is about, from chapter 2, to chapter 22, verse 5, is contained right there. And then this is now Jesus, uh, through the angel, through the Holy Spirit, wrapping up the book and summarizing the book for us. And so he begins in verse 6 today and says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. I don't know about you, but there is a sense in my heart this morning of the holiness of God as we come to this passage of Scripture. The Lord God and the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. You see, so often we spend time, don't we, in our lives looking for God's will, looking for answers to questions. And certainly there are answers to questions that may not necessarily be in the Bible. What should I do next? Where will my next job be? What should the answer to this question or this decision be in my life? But as we seek God, as we pray, as we read his word, you know, he will reveal things to us. He has a unique way of speaking to us in and through his word, by his spirit, through song lyrics, through interactions with people. And it says here, the Lord God of the Holy Prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. You see, this book, God has given us as his love letter, as his message, as his word to us. And we have to go no further than Psalm 119 and read through that and understand how much of an emphasis God himself places upon his word. And here, the angel is revealing to John, or continues to reveal, these words which are faithful and true. Faithful and true always is a word, it's a term, it's a phrase that can always be applied to the accuracy of God's word. You see, we have God's word given to us, and if you think about it, it was transmitted, recorded, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's preserved, it's God-breathed, it's accurate, and it is faithful and true. And God has transmitted his word to us so that we can have it in our hands. You know, there was a time in history, in that period of time called the Dark Ages, and for many years where people were not allowed to have a copy of God's word. We live in perhaps the most blessed era of human history to have all of the freedoms we have. I have the Word of God on my phone, and if you have a phone, a smartphone, so do you. I have it on my tablet. I have it on my computer. I have it as a Bible, as a printed document in my hands. You know, there is no excuse for us to be ignorant of God's Word, is there? Because it's so readily available. It's just as readily available as bread and milk is on the shelf of any convenience store or grocery store or corner store that you and I go to. We have the word of God given to us and made ready for us. God, uh, you know, we can do studies on the importance and the, you know, the authority of God's word. But God himself says, this is Psalm 138, verse 2. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. This is God speaking. This is how important his word is to him. And if he expresses importance like this for his word, that means we should take God's word with the utmost importance in our lives. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, the Spirit of God has been put into our hearts so that when we read God's Word, the Spirit bears witness of God's Word with us. He confirms God's Word. He encourages us with the truth of God's Word. Often our minds and our understandings are darkened until we read God's word. And sometimes, I'm sure we all have had this experience, I know I do, where I'm reading it and I don't understand it. And I say, Lord, please help me to understand. And then I go back and read it again and I have understanding. Not because I'm smart, not because I'm of mensa status and my intellect, but because God is faithful to reveal his word. If you have kids or, or have been around little kids, uh, you know, taught little kids in Sunday school, you're explaining the Word of God to them, and it is amazing how that childlike faith that Jesus spoke of is so real, it's so true. Our kids understand it. It's so amazing to watch little kids, six, seven, eight, understand the gospel and say, I want Jesus to come into my heart. You know, how many times as we've had baptisms have we had little kids come forward and say, yes, I believe, yes, I understand, yes, I want to believe in Christ and take him as my Savior. You see, God will speak to us if we are willing. He's said over and over in the scriptures, if we are willing, if we are seeking, if we are wanting, if we are knocking, if we are asking, then he will reveal himself to us. Verse 7, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I see in this the authority of God's word. Jesus is speaking here. If you have a red-letter Bible, those letters are in red. In fact, as you look at this chapter, you see verse 7, verse 12, verse 13, verse 16, verse 20 all have red letters. We have Jesus speaking here at the end of the book. We have him adding his personal signature. You know how when, we've, when we read Paul's letters, it comes to the end, and so often Paul has a signature uh, outtake. Uh, you know, one of his epistles, he says, Hi, Paul, I'm writing these words with my own hand. Here we, we are at the end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, and we have, as it were, Jesus himself signing this book for us. So he says here in verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. The word quickly means suddenly, or when it happens, it'll be rapid. Behold, I am coming quickly. Now Jesus is speaking this to John on the island of Patmos in roughly 95 A.D., and here we are 2,000 years later. And the Apostle Peter wrote these words in his epistle where he says, for years people have been saying, where is the promise of his coming? He's been saying he's coming, where is it? And he said, don't get discouraged, don't be dismayed. Remember, the Lord is true. A thousand years with the Lord is as a day. So, it's been about two days since Jesus spoke these words. You see, to him time is nothing. To us, time is everything. With each passing day today's my daughter's birthday I can't believe she's 24 my my baby girl 24 years bam blink of an eye but for God a blink of an eye is a thousand years behold I am coming quickly Jesus is speaking these words and if you don't get this message by this verse you will by the end of this passage this morning he is coming quickly we are not to take it for granted. We are not to be asleep. We are not to be, you know, oh, well, you know it'll, it'll, who knows when it will be. No, he's telling us himself uh, today in, in a number of ways, he's telling us, I am coming quickly. There is an eminency to my return. We should be ready. We should not take for granted how long it will be. We don't know. There's a reason we don't know. We're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to know, because when he comes, as we said some of these things last week, there's there's a passage in Luke, that says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When he comes, what will he find us doing? What will he find us saying? What will he find us believing? What will he find us thinking? Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's an amazing verse in the book of 1 Samuel, and you may remember this, this was during King Saul's reign, and he had begun to drift in his relationship with God. And God had given him some very specific directions on what he was supposed to do. And he had already begun to rationalize and compromise in his mind and heart of what obedience looked like for him. And so he did what he wanted and said, well, I'll do this for the Lord and I'll do that for the Lord, but he did not follow the word of the Lord. And in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-two, so Samuel, this is the priest speaking to the king. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Jesus says, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You know, it's not up to us to determine which things we want to obey and observe and which things we don't. I had a man early on in my training who referred to those of us who like to be selective in the things that we take from the scriptures as cafeteria theology. Now, we don't have cafeterias as much up here as we do in the south where I grew up. But uh, cafeterias are a big thing on Sundays after church. Everybody goes to the cafeterias. And if you are familiar with the cafeteria, if you've ever been down a line, it's a lot like our potlucks. You can go down and say, I want some macaroni and cheese. I don't like beef. I don't want any lettuce. I'll take some of this. I'll take some of that. I'll skip over this. And we cannot be that way with God's word. We cannot choose and say, well, I like this command, I don't like that one. I like this word of the Lord, I don't like that. I like that book of the Bible, but I don't like this one. You see, God's word is an entity. It is a complete message from God to us. And from the beginning, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it is the complete word of God. And there is no part of it that we can look at and say selectively I like this, I don't like that. And he says here, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now people debate, is he talking just about the book of Revelation or is he talking about the entire Bible? Well, let's consider both. Let's just say he's talking about only the book of Revelation. How are you doing? How am I doing at heeding everything that was spoken to us in the book of Revelation? let's narrow it down a little bit. Let's say, how are we doing at reading and keeping and observing what was just written in the letters to the seven churches? Let's just narrow it down to that. How are we doing? Now, let's take it in the context of the fact that this book is uh, the last book of the Bible. It's a part of the entirety of Scripture, and every Uh, verse has a context of a paragraph every paragraph is in the context of a chapter the chapter is in the context of a book the book is in the context of a testament new testament or old testament which is in the context of the bible so whether you want to debate or argue that the prophecy of this book is referring to the book of revelation only or referring perhaps to the entire bible and i take it as the entire bible personally Either way, you look at it, how are we doing at keeping the words of the prophecy of this book? And he's saying, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And we just read that promise from chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who hears and who listens and reads and who understands. You know, this is the only book in the Bible that has the audacity to promise a blessing to those who will read and study it. Now, the entire Bible does provide that for us, all the books of the Bible, but this is the only book that has that unique promise. Behold, I'm coming quickly, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. One commentator said, obedience to God's word is a mark of true salvation. We can't say on the one hand, we love God and we love Jesus, and on the other hand, do what we want. We must obey him if we say we know him. If we say the Spirit of God has come in our hearts and that we're born again to Jesus Christ, we're alive to God and dead to sin, then we must follow him in obedience. Finally, it says here, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prof- prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is Peter saying here in 2 Peter 1:19 through 21? First of all, He's saying that prophetic words, the words that we have recorded in the scripture, were given to us to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. You see, prophecy always provides us with perspective. Without prophecy, there would be, in some measure, just a group of promises, but no glue to hold them together. You see, prophecy holds the promises of God together. Prophecy provides a timeline. Prophecy provides insight to what the future holds prophecy provides insight to what's important to God's heart so prophecy is incredibly important for us as children of God and as believers in Jesus Christ and then he says in 2 Peter one twenty, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of private interpretation back at the beginning I had shared slides with you for several weeks about the different approaches people have taken to interpreting the book of Revelation and prophecy in general and all of the different symbolic approaches and Preterism, which says that things are all fulfilled back in AD 70, and all of this is just symbolic at this point. In fact, we're already living in the kingdom age and all those things. And you look at it and you look at the news, and I'm like, I don't know, we must be reading different books because it is impossible to me, in my mind as I read this book, that we are living in the kingdom age as it was described to us just in the last few chapters. So we don't have the right to come to us and say, this is my interpretation, this is your interpretation. Once we've had a careful study and we've made a a gallant effort at understanding the scriptures, okay, perhaps then we can allow for differences in in these things and certainly we're not going to fight each other as believers over these things. But he's saying here, he's trying to impress upon us that prophecy and the interpretation of prophecy is not to be taken Lightly, because he says, in Second Peter: 121, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, reminding us that Scripture is inerrant and inspired. It's God breathed, as Paul wrote to Timothy. Now I, John verse eight, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. So John is testifying again. He heard and he saw these things and when he heard and he saw he had a reaction. He had a visceral reaction. He had a physical response. He fell down and worshiped before the feet of the angel. Now it's interesting when we think about worship and we're going to talk about this again in just a few minutes on verse 9 but when we think about worship, worship is so important to God and our response to God and I think of the many definitions we could throw out there for the way that we define worship certainly one of them is worship is a response to the presence of God how do we respond to the presence of God what is our awareness of the presence of God in our lives do we understand that he's with us 24 7 God isn't more real to us or maybe he shouldn't be more real to us on Sunday morning than he is on Sunday night or Friday night or any other time for God is always present he's omnipresent God is omniscient he's all-knowing God sees everything you see he's always with us do we realize he's always with us what is our response to the presence of God John's response in this moment as the angel was revealing these things to him was to fall down before the feet of the angel. I don't think, and although John had done this before, unfortunately, and fallen down before the feet of an angel who says, hey, don't worship me. It happens again here, but I don't fault John for this. I think John was just responding to what was happening. It was what was being shown to him, and he was overwhelmed with the holiness of God. And so he fell down and worshiped. And the angel said to him in verse 9, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. In essence, he's saying here with this command, with this phrase, worship God, he's going all the way back really to the Ten Commandments, isn't he? Where it says, You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, Worship God. And that's why we need to understand. While there are many ways for us to worship God, certainly musical worship is one, what we do on Sunday morning here. Yes, that's worship. That's not the only form of worship. Worship has many forms. We can worship God while we're driving. We can worship God as we read his word. We can worship God as we are interacting with other people in our family or in our workplace. You see, worship is attributing worth and honor and glory due to God Almighty, and if we make our lives lives of worship where we are doing that in everything that we do and everything that we say, our entire life can be an, a life of worship. In every act that we are participating in can be an act of worship. See, worship should be pervasive in our lives. Worship is not an appointment on a calendar, it's an attitude, it's a lifestyle. So he's saying here, worship God. All of our worship should be God-directed, and I think it's always been a challenge with worship as long as I can remember, whether it's a hymn or whether it's a praise chorus or a modern worship song. The challenge is, as we listen, of course, we have these stations now on our Pandora and our Spotify and Apple Music, and we can go in and say, I want to listen to Christian music, I want to listen to Chris Tomlin, I want to listen to Jeremy Camp, I want to listen to whomever. Play a mix, right? And we can have that playing, and that's great. But as you listen to those lyrics, are those lyrics vertically directed? Are we singing to God, or are we singing about ourselves? You see, this is one of the great challenges that we have today for those of us who are involved in leading worship, and as we consider songs that are brought to us, we're, we're reading them, and we're looking at them, and we're saying... You know, sometimes it's appropriate for me to say, God, I need you, and to sing a song of consecration or, or that kind of a thing. That's, it's never wrong to say I or me in a song, but is the, what's the message of the song? What is the thrust of the worship? Is the thrust of the worship God-focused and God-directed? And that's what we need to be concerned with, and that is the challenge for today. In fact, we've already had a few songs where we've had to actually just change the lyrics of one verse or one phrase in the song just to kind of give it a little tweak toward biblical accuracy so that when we're singing it we understand you know what it's not about me it's never been about me it's never been about us it's always been about him and the best worship is the worship that's going to cause me to focus on him the author and the perfecter of my faith Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. I love how God makes his word accessible to us. Remember with Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, God had revealed all of these amazing things to Daniel. And in chapter 12, verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Daniel 12.8, although I heard, I did not understand, then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Verse 9, and he said to me, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. What did that mean? That meant it was not for that time period, it was not for that era, and although God gave this incredible revelation to Daniel, it was for a time many years in the future. We know now that Daniel's prophecy was a precursor for the book of Revelation. And much of it is fulfilled in the book of Revelation as we have been studying it. But now, as the angel is speaking to John here, he says, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. This is real. This is about to happen, John. We are in an era where nothing needs to happen for it to be fulfilled. And so he says here this interesting phrase, For the time is at hand. And that phrase is always used in Scripture, again, to communicate to us eminency, to communicate that it's right around the corner. In Romans 13:12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. The day he's referring to is the day when we meet God, the day when we stand before him. Let your gentleness, Philippians 4, 5, be known to all men, the Lord is at hand. Paul speaking those words to help encourage us to understand that in our interactions with people, we need to be treating people as God would treat them if it was Jesus standing in our bodies interacting with those people. James 5.8, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What does he mean, establish your hearts? I think he, he means a lot of things by it, especially in the context of James. But, you know, don't allow yourselves to be tossed to and fro. Establish your heart. Be rooted and grounded in Christ. Don't allow your circumstances to toss you back and forth. Remember he said at the beginning of James, you know, if one who has an unstable faith is like uh, the waves of the seas tossed to and fro. We are not, as believers, to be tossed to and fro by the things going on in the news, by the things going on in the world, but even by the things going on in our own lives. As difficult as those things may be, as hard and as challenging as those things may be, we are not to be people who are emotionally unstable, who are spiritually unstable. Why? Because we have Jesus, because we have the Holy Spirit, because we have the Word of God. And he says things like in Ephesians that we are to be rooted and grounded in him, We are to cling to the cross. We are to cling to Jesus. And 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Is he saying that we can't have a sense of humor and have fun? Of course not. But he is saying that we should be aware, we should be serious, we should be sober in our thinking. And he says here, you should be serious and watchful in your prayers. I think too often our prayers are like our worship self-focused now we are given the freedom to bring our needs before god and of course we should do that but as we think about our prayers are the core of our prayers focused on ourselves god help me meet my needs is that where we're focused is that what we're looking at or are we focused on the lord Are we praying for missionaries? Are we praying for the gospel to go forth? Are we praying for revival and awakening? Are we asking God to save my neighbor? Are we focused on ourselves or are we looking outward and focused on those around us on a lost and a dying world? Verse 11, he who is unjust, we have to speed up a lot here. Let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Interesting verse, isn't it? In view of this verse eleven contains a seemingly strange command. In effect, the angel advocates the status quo for the evil and the uh, for both the evil and the righteous. By this he does not mean that people should remain unmoved by the prophecies of this book, but rather that if the prophecies <clears throat> excuse me are rejected, there is no other message that will work. If the warnings of the book are not sufficient, there is no more that God has to say. The evil must continue in their evil way and be judged by the Lord when he comes. The same rule, however, applies to the righteous. Their reaction to the prophecy, of course, will be different, but the exhortation in their case is to continue in righteousness and holiness. It is an either-or proposition with no neutrality possible. There is a sense also in which... Present choices fix character. Let me say that again. Present choices fix character. A time is coming when change will be impossible. Present choices will become permanent in character. We have to realize the soberness of the hour before us. The finished work of Christ settles what we are. You see, if we're in Christ then the righteous will continue to be righteous. But if we're not in Christ, the time is running out. If we are in the category of the unjust or in the category of the unbeliever, we are to continue to talk to them, to preach to them, to love them, to encourage them while it is still called today, and to call them to repentance, to call them to salvation. But a time is coming. Much like Pharaoh, if you remember the, the story of Pharaoh with Moses that we kept seeing that over and over and over in the story with Moses, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the day came when the tragedy of the scriptures reveals that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because God sees the beginning and the end, and he saw what would happen. And so we should not take that for granted. In the book of Hebrews chapter 3, as well as Chapter four, it says, while it is called today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Uh, While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, It says again in chapter four of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse seven. "Uh, Today, after such a long time as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the, the word there in Hebrews 3 and 4 is pointing to the fact that there is a time to call upon the name of the Lord. But there will come a time when we will not be able to, when we will no longer be able to call upon the name of the Lord. And how important is that? And in verse 12, Jesus, again speaking, says, and behold, I am coming quickly. Second time he said that. Now, if Jesus says something once, it should be important to us. Second time here in verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Many believe that this verse is the verse that's actually referring to 2 Corinthians 5, the Bema seed of Christ. Maybe it could be, it could be that it happened earlier in in the earlier chapter that we studied, but the point is that when he comes, he is bringing a reward. And the reward for the deeds done in the body for his people you see, for those of us who know Christ, this settles where we will be. We will be with Christ. We will be receiving from Christ the just and the due reward. But remember these words of Scripture, Luke twelve thirty four: for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when... Uh, He will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks that they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will find watching. Assuredly I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them, so... Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also, this is Jesus speaking, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion? of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Jesus says, for the second time I am coming quickly. And then in verse 13, again he reminds us, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. How many times does Jesus have to express to us his sovereignty, his kingship, his lordship? I'm the beginning and the end, meaning all things are summed up in Christ. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. Jesus is saying that in Genesis 1-1 when it said, in the beginning, God, that he was there, and indeed he was. And he's saying as we come to the end of the book, Here I am. I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In other words, it's all about Jesus. And Paul has this amazing uh, thing he wrote at the end of Romans chapter 11 where he says, All things are from him and to him and unto him. Everything is summed up in Christ. You see, if someone rejects Jesus, if they don't believe in Jesus, if they believe in Jesus as only a good man and that he is only one of many ways to God, whoever God is, then they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the Lordship of Christ. Jesus says he is the one. Everything is summed up in Christ. And he says here in Revelation 22, 14, just on that note Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. You see, there's, a, there's an element of our faith where faith works. You see, this is what James was telling us about. Paul said, works can't save you, but once you are saved, there will be works. James said over and over and over in his short little epistle, he said, if you have faith, show me your works. You see, the person who actually is saved, who truly knows Jesus Christ, who truly has the Spirit of God in them, that person desires to have works that are befitting of salvation. There's many passages that talk about that. There's a whole other Bible study, and what, is it, what do the works of the believer look like? Well, the works of a believer, while we may look for the specifics, like should I feed the hungry and that kind of thing, it's really the works of the believer are more about an attitude, aren't they? We have an attitude that we want to serve God and we want to serve others. We want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And so our lives should be befitting of those kinds of works. How are we doing works of love? How are we serving God? How are we serving his church? How are we serving the community? How far are we willing to go to serve others who are in need? How far are we willing to go to put aside our own comfort and convenience that the name of Jesus might be exalted and glorified? You know, there's something that I see that's troubling just in Christian culture today. And I think that 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 thing is... We often don't know how to manage our calendars. We don't understand what the word priorities mean. You know, there's always going to be things competing for our time and for our attention. But we need to learn, to to use a well-worn cliche, to understand that we are a people of destiny. We have a, a purpose. God has a plan. We have an end. There's a glorious and a blessed hope that awaits us. And we are just passing through this life. These days, these moments that we live this time with our children, they only come once. So are our lives ordered around priorities that are God priorities, that are God-centered and God-focused? You know, when I tell someone I can't come and help you when they call me when they're in need, uh, I feel horrible about that because not that I should meet every need, but the point is that we should be there to serve people, to help them in their time of need. And we have to be, of course, uh, wise about those things, but God wants us to have the attitude that we are obeying his commandments, that we are loving people, that we are loving one another. And he says here, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. In other words, there is a genuineness of our faith that is borne out by our works. Our works validate, they prove the veracity of our faith and may enter through the gates into the city. Blessed are those who do his commandments. That means we believe. The word do also means obey. It's interesting, yesterday in our study in Joshua chapters 12 and 13, we were talking about the two words, inheritance and possession. God has promised an inheritance to his people, but there is also a possession. And we, by faith, have to take steps of action to gain the possession, there's the promise through the inheritance, but we must take possession. And that is parallel to our works. Verse 15: But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. When he says here dogs, he's referring to those of low moral character, not to animals. And he's he's speaking of those people, again, this is like the third, maybe the fourth time since we've crossed into uh, this passage of Scripture, into this era of history, where he speaks of those people who will not be in heaven. Those people of this kind of character. And so he reminds us again and again and again. The gospel is not for everybody, not meaning that the gospel isn't, you know, we shouldn't preach it to everybody, but that not everybody will believe. And that is a tragic and a sad thing for us to understand. But he's also saying here that we need to understand that, as many people say, not everybody's going to be in heaven. You know, there are people who actually say that Satan will be in heaven. There are people out there who believe in the end, everything's going to be made good, Satan and his minions, they're going to be restored. They'll be in heaven. All the people who didn't believe in Christ and blasting the name of Jesus, they'll be in heaven. And you hear these things and you're like, what Bible are you reading? (laughs) It's not the same Bible that I'm reading. And here he says again, he warns that those who don't know Christ, and it's a tragic verse, will not be in heaven. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus says, I, Jesus. This is an emphasis for us. Jesus is adding his own signature, his own authenticity, his own authority to this word. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches not just the seven letters to the seven churches, but that this book, the book of Revelation, was meant for the church. And again, I say it's a tragedy that churches don't teach and study this book. Jesus wants the church to know what's going to happen in the time of the end. And he, he signs this, he underscores it by saying, I am the root and the offspring of David. That speaks to the... God promising that his word would be fulfilled and that all of those scriptures, I have a ton of scriptures here that I don't have time to read to you, that speak of Jesus being the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Isaiah 9, we read this every year at Christmas, uh, for unto us a child is born, uh, born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And there's so many more that speak to this here again that we don't have time to cover this morning about the son of David and the root and the offspring of Jesse It's interesting, this phrase of the bright and morning star seems to come from only one place, which is Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, and here's what it says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. There is buried here in that verse that had a very specific application, the fact that Jesus would become the star that arises out of Israel. Jesus emphasizes these things, the prophecies of this book, which are for the churches. Thus the revelation begins and ends with the church in mind. John addressed the book to the seven churches. Jesus first appeared among the seven golden candlesticks, which represented the seven churches. He instructed John to record what he saw and send it to the seven churches. Then he took all of chapters 2 and 3 to speak specifically to each of those churches. The church is the bride of Christ. She is designated a special place at his side. The Bible reminds us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in Ephesians 5. Therefore, we should not be surprised to see this emphasis on the significance of the church in the closing verses of the Revelation. The fact that she participates in the final invitation, verse 17, reminds us that the church today should be a place where Jesus Christ is worshipped, where the gospel is preached, and where the appeal is made for people to come to Christ as Lord and Savior. Look at verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is one of the most amazing, sweetest verses in all of Scripture. This is telling us that there is a unified message. The Spirit of God says, come, always calling people to Christ. Remember, Jesus said the Spirit would testify of me. And as a side note, let me say, this is how you know when people who are doing Weird things in the name of the Holy Spirit, is it really the Holy Spirit or not? Well, the Holy Spirit always, according to Jesus, testifies of him. And if these weird things that people say the Spirit of God is doing are not testifying of Jesus, you throw it out. The Spirit and the bride say, come, the bride of Christ. This is the Great Commission. This is is what we do. We tell others about Christ and let him who hears say, come. That speaks of the fact that anyone who hears the gospel of Christ, who learns of Jesus, who reads his word, what should be the natural response of that person's life, of my life and of your life, we are issuing the call to come, to come to Jesus and let him who thirsts come. This implies, just as we go back even to the Beatitudes, right, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus says, let all those who are thirsty come. Let all those who are hungry come. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let him who thirsts come. You see, anytime we have that spiritual hunger and thirst, that meaninglessness in life, that void, that emptiness, that is pointing us toward Jesus Christ. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, this is John 3.16 in a little nugget here, whoever desires let him take the water of life freely see while it is still called today Jesus is still holding out his hand he's still saying while there is time come this is the end of the book this is he's wrapping it up he's about to put a bow on it and he's saying come come drink come eat come take of the water of life freely Whoever hears these words will repeat and utter the word, come. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's the call of Christ. That's the call of the Spirit. That's the call of the bride. That's the call of all who hear and receive the message of Jesus. For I testify, verse 18, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Do you get a sense that God's serious about his word? He cares how we treat his word. Paul wrote to Timothy to write to church leaders to say, rightly divide, rightly handle the word of God. We are not free to say, well, I think it means this. We have to study, we have to understand it, and we have to accurately proclaim it. A final warning, one person said, not to add or subtract from the words of this prophecy follows the appeal Not only does this apply to tampering with the text itself, but also it reminds us that every communicator should not make the book say more or less than it actually says. It has always been a temptation for every generation to read its own current events, he calls this newspaper exegesis, into the text of the Revelation. New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger observes when books were copied by hand, scribes would occasionally add comments of their own to leave um, out words they thought were unsuitable. John, therefore, includes at the end of his book a solemn warning, declaring that nothing should be added or deleted from his text for the very good reason that it is a revelation from God. So first and foremost, this is a warning to those who would be transmitters of the text, but it is also a warning to us, is it not? That we are not to do anything that would improperly handle the Word of God so we didn't we shouldn't add to the word of god and we shouldn't take away from the word of god as it says in verse 19 we could spend a long time we're out of time on talking about the issue of translations there are good translations and there are bad translations translations are where teams of people scholars language scholars historical scholars have gotten together taken an original manuscript greek hebrew etc pulled them together and then studied them and figured out how do I translate them into this language, whatever that language is, you know, French, English, Spanish, whatever. So we should always be looking for a translation, not a paraphrase. And so paraphrases like the Living Bible, um, those are things where people just kind of sat down and saying, I'm just going to find a different way to say it to make it more palatable to this generation. But when they do that, they have not been faithful to the text, they haven't studied it to make sure that what the words mean are what we are translating. So in a nutshell, when Bibles that we have in our hands that are translations, they they take sort of a a spectrum. The spectrum is word-for-word translations. New King James, King James, New American Standard, ESV, those are word-for-word translations. When you move to the NIV, and I'm not saying it's bad, uh, that is a thought-for-thought translation. So it's difficult to study with the NIV because it's giving a sort of a paraphrase or, or, or phrase to, you know, sort of communicate the meaning of a word. So we have to be careful with those things. But then as we go further away, we get into to things where people have translated the scriptures using methods and techniques to try and make them more palatable for a generation. Such a translation called the Passion Translation actually exists today, and I would encourage you to stay away from that, and if you have one, I would encourage you to burn it. It's never a good sign when a particular movement decides that the words of Scripture need to be improved, but this is exactly what, and I'm not saying the name of the church, because somebody's going to be mad at me, Uh, but this is exactly what Bethel has sought to do. (laughs) With the Passion Translation. Brian Simmons, the sole translator on the project, claims to have uncovered the love language of God that has been missing from other translations. Simmons states, what we're trying to do with this project is to bring words that go right through the human soul, past the deferences of our mind that goes right to our spirit. Andrew Shedd, the head of Old Testament and Hebrew at Moore Theological College and member of the NIV Committee on Bible Translation, has written an in-depth review of the Passion Translation Uh, Shedd argues that in Simmons attempts to reintroduce the reintroduce quote passion and fire of the Bible to the English reader he abandons all uh, interest in textual accuracy and plays fast and loose with the original languages and inserts so much new material, get this, into the text that it is at least 50 percent longer than the original manuscripts. Shedd concludes that the result is a strongly sectarian translation that no longer counts as scripture by masquerading as a Bible, it threatens to bind entire churches in thrall to a false God. So we have to be aware of these things. They're out there. And when we choose a translation, we should choose it carefully. So if that's something you want to discuss later or argue about, that's fine. We can have that discussion um, but no one can dare add to the word of God except in blatant unbelief and and in denial that the word of God is indeed God's own message to humanity. Likewise, no one should dare take away from the words of this revelation, not just this book, the book of Revelation, but the scriptures as a whole, which is also an insult to the inspired word of God. What a solemn warning this is to critics who have tampered with this book and other portions of scripture in arrogant self-confidence, that they are equipped intellectually and spiritually to determine what is true and what is not true in Scripture. Though not stated in detail, the point of these two verses is that a child of God who reveres him will recognize at once that this is the Word of God. There are warnings in Deuteronomy and Proverbs uh, as well not to add or to take away from the Scriptures. So we should be careful with the word of God we should handle it accurately we should treat it with great respect verse 20 he who testifies to these things says surely I am coming quickly amen even so come Lord Jesus Jesus says again surely I am coming quickly There's a poem I came across. I'd like to share it with you as we close this morning. I don't have the author's name, but the poem is called I Will See Him. And I think this accurately sums up Revelation 21 and 22. Take me to the holy city they call the new Jerusalem. For I know my Lord will be there, and I want to be with him. Lead me through the pearly gates, though it's not them I long to see. I don't care how big and shiny or how grand those gates may be. And please don't stop to admire the streets of gold beneath our feet. It's not the gold that I've dreamed of, but Jesus whom I want to meet. Let me stand before the throne that my eyes may see the beauty that until I've never known. Don't show me the sapphires or the rubies. They're just one side I want to see. It's the lovely face of Jesus with whom my soul has longed to be. There's nothing more that I desire than to stand before him in that place. And with my eyes behold the glory of seeing Jesus face to face. The book ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the study of his word. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this time together. We bless your holy name. We're grateful to you. And Lord, you have allowed us to study. You have allowed us to understand your word. God, you have been so good to us. Lord, you have filled us up to overflowing. We pray that your word has been exalted above all your name in our hearts and in this place. And we pray that your word has changed us, has transformed us. We pray, Lord, that we cannot and that we will not be the same today as we were back in March when we began this study. We pray that your word will quicken us and help us to understand that, Lord, we need to be looking for you coming. We need to be looking to the clouds and understanding that you are right around the corner and that it should change how we think and how we live and what our priorities are. And God, I trust that you will give us spiritual wisdom and understanding in all these things. And we pray in the name of Jesus. And as we pray, Lord, we pray for any who do not know you or who are unsure, that today might be their day where they turn to you, Jesus, and say, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sin. I turn from my ways and I turn to you. And Lord, it's that simple. And you will come in and make them a new creation in Christ. We love you, we bless you, and all God's people said, amen. Shall we stand this morning?